Giving us a five-star review is the equivalent of swiping right on the Son of a Pitch podcast on Tinder. So if you like the sexy, dulcet tones of Max and Vince in your ear holes, you know what to do. Give us a five-star review and a little sexy comment. Cheers. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is son of a pitch. Dylan, you son of a pitch. Welcome to another episode of Son of a Pitch, a podcast about two young idiots in advertising talking to smarter people than they are. Now, who do we have on this week's episode, Max? In this episode, we had on Ben Peacock, who was the founder of Republic of Everyone. And now there's this, there's this trend in advertising and marketing and probably just business in general at the moment that good is the new cool. And I think Ben is a real embodiment of that statement. He has an agency that really serves non-for-profits and businesses looking to get into social causes to help their brand. Um, And yeah, it was a really fascinating conversation. Yeah. So one of the things that you can learn is basically how to pick apart purpose and get to something that's actually real, Uh, how to do something benevolent in the right way, not just to cash in on a social cause, Mm. moving overseas and working in foreign markets. I mean, Ben talks about working in Thailand and we also get a bit deep because Ben's got a lot of really interesting stories to share um, about some tragedy that's happened in his life. And we do go into that and kind of how it affected his career and how it maybe kind of dragged him into a, into another aspect of advertising that has since been for the better. Um, but we talk a lot about his mind state. And maybe if you're going through something similar, you can learn from that. And then in the pitch, we talk about the street art amnesty. And the street art amnesty is basically we challenge Ben to get the public on side with giving street artists basically a free pass for getting caught. Yeah, it's a, it's a great episode. One of my favorites. I hope you guys enjoy. Let's kick it off. Okay. So, Ben Peacock, welcome to Son of a Pitch. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, it's brilliant to have you on this podcast because I think you're a bit of a different cut, a bit of a different mold to the other guests that we have on the podcast um, or have had on the podcast most recently. We kind of wanted to start out with you as maybe a kid, uh, what you were kind of thinking about advertising and when it first dawned on you that this advertising thing existed. Um, can you tell us about when you first started noticing advertising and maybe its application to kind of sell products or, or change behavior or do things of that nature? What a great question. I, um, funny enough, I was brought up my, in a pretty hippie household. My mum my wouldn't let me have any sugar, any bad foods at all, and I wasn't allowed to watch commercial TV at all. So I was brought <laughs> up on ABC. So yeah, monkey magic at the time. Oh, yeah, Doctor Who. It was all those sorts of things. So, in a funny way, I don't think I had a lot of commercial input into my life yeah. at a younger age. What I do think was interesting about that, though, is I remember then starting to watch commercial TV and seeing my friends watching and thinking there was how kind of boring it was. It didn't really seem to have the twist that you had in a lot of the ABC programs, which were kind of designed to have some mental nutrition value, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in that sense, I think my mum did me a huge favour in that, in that sense and just sort of put creativity into, in, into my life quite early by accident by trying to keep the commercial piece out of it, which is interesting. Um, in terms of the advertising bit, I fell into it in a complete way. I had a girlfriend who said, I think you're a good writer and you should go and write things. And I'm like, I don't know who, how to do that. <laughs> and um, I was studying accounting, actually. I've, I'm a trained wow. accountant. Wow. <laughs> so, and I got to the end of that and thought, this is 
um, I better go do work experience somewhere. And a family friend put me in a, in a mojo, the ad agency, which was massive at the time, you know. And then I went around and he was, he was running the place, which was good because he got me into every department. And I sat down with the creatives and went, these guys have got the best job going around town. So I then went through that, did award school and, and kind of fell into it. And I, and I guess in answer to your other bit of the question, when do you realize, you know, communications is a tool and a power that, that came through actually working in advertising. It was really a case of I've finished uni, I better do something with my life and it's probably not going to be accounting. And then wow. after that, did you, uh, can you tell us about Loud? You were building websites for them? Yeah, so I was picked, um, I was picked up out of a wood school by, I actually went and worked for a year for free for a great guy called Kim Griffin who used to work in Foss and Unloved, which was another good agency of the day, you know, and then I finally got a paid job after about a year with um, a place called Hanlon Wilson Weeks, which became Loud. And um, what happened is I was living up here just in Surrey Hills with a mate and he was a computer program and one day he brought home in 1996 he goes watch this and he plugs his computer into the phone which we thought was pretty weird <laughs> yeah. and he shows us the internet I'm like what is this thing and we're all like wow so I kind of I'm a writer but I went I, I went and learned that uh, this is a slight aside, but I, I figured out early if I let my art director do up all the ideas, he only ever did up his ideas. So I learned how to use all the programs so I could make sure some of my ideas got in as well wow. in the present. Yeah. So, oh. anyway, so I could do enough Photoshop to be dangerous, you know. So um, <laughs> I sat with my computer program mate and we just started making websites for like anyone we could find just to learn it. And then um, within Hanlon Wilson Weeks, they decided they'd set me up a little division. Um, to just do websites so I got a couple of the creatives and we, and we actually bought a little tech company and that's where Loud started and then um, the owners came to, to, to me at some point and said look the, the culture you've created within this little offshoot is brilliant we're going to yeah. actually rename the whole agency Loud so that's actually where Wow Loud they decided to rename the entire agency yeah I thought we'd been doing in digital we were trying to work out so we were just trying to figure out what is this this thing you know and the whole agency pivoted to digital after that um i think they tried to blend it together yeah. to some degree yeah and it was a very very i mean we're talking 99 now you know it's a very early attempt at an integrated agency but i think we we sort of managed it at the time yeah yeah it was back when you know banner ads were the be all and end all and they had to be 20k which is almost impossible <laughs> so you spent <laughs> most of your life trying to get a good idea down to a size you're allowed yeah. to actually push through the internet seems I'll, like banner ads went back through a stage of being like the be all and end all for some reason oh, I feel like in, in some agencies they are now as well which is kind of weird what, what kind of projects were you doing on the web back then was this just like HTML websites that had kind of word art as their titles <laughs> like, what, what are we talking about what could, you, that bad. What, could, <laughs> what could you get as features uh, um, I actually learnt to build websites so I used to use Dreamweaver yeah you'd, right you'd basically make a giant Photoshop file and then chop it into squares oh and reassemble it as a table and that was well that's original HTML and you drop your text in and then you do your hyperlinks it was it was that simple you know so I just think of the Space Jam 1996 website that's still up design classic <laughs> yeah that Beautiful. is actually exactly right. And of course, people back then, now everything's a bit standardized, you know, user experience has become made a certain flow that kind of works. But back then, everyone was trying everything. Like I remember we created this thing where for a property development of all things, where you could get in a spaceship and go for a space tour, <laughs> uh, like from, from a, a tour from above of this whole thing, which is a bit like kind of Google Street View now, I guess. Yeah. But it was a much clunkier version where you could see all the spaceship around you and the little alien that's sitting next to you. So like this day, age you'd never do that because it's just massively overdone for what you're trying to achieve but back then you didn't know that you're just sort of trying everything sure they were 10 years too early <laughs> yeah that's right maybe that time has come for my spaceship to make a comeback so you moved from loud and this by the way loud was in 93 right so we're we're t we're talking a fair while back. Yeah, I started there then. Then I went, um, I did the smartest thing I've ever done. At age 30, I decided just, it was time, if I didn't go travel the world, I'd never travel the world. I actually got offered the job of creative director and I went, that's like a five, six year thing to do that well. And I went, if I do this, I'll miss my chance to go see the world kind of thing. So I just um, quit and went backpacking, basically. Um, and that ended me up with a job in Dublin. 
yes. Y&R in Young and Rubicum in Dublin, which was really good. That was a great place to work. And that ended up, um, I ended up freelancing a little bit on the side into Bangkok, into JWT. And then they gave me a job. And in between that, did more traveling, you know, and then went and um, worked as a regional creative director on a lot of the Unilever stuff there, which is... How did uh, traveling uh, and exploring the world make you a better planner? Well, <laughs> creative, yeah. Sorry, sorry, creative. creative. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, it Vince, cut, cut, cut. <laughs> I forgot everything I'd known and had a really good time. <laughs> um, actually, I think working in other countries was really good. Um, working in Dublin was great because the Irish have such a sense of self. Yeah. You know, and you, um, but they're also very wide-eyed. It's it's interesting here. If you if someone comes from overseas and tries to work in the industry here, unless they're English, they almost get shunned as mm. what they yeah. know doesn't count. I went over there. They're like, "Come on in. You bring a different perspective." And actually, that's probably the smartest thing I picked up is um, we try and hire in as many international people as we can. And and it's uh, the stories they give me of just not even being able to get an a, 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 into a door elsewhere is amazing. And they come in the most awesome people. So yeah. Just that. Just the knowledge to look beyond your own boundaries is probably the most important thing. Now, this is really interesting because when I'm looking at your kind of career. At Loud, you were there for eight years. So mm. that's like, that's a long tenure, uh, kind of comparative to the tenures of most people today. Like, people kind of argue that three years is like a long time in an agency these days. What, what made you stay around for eight years? And then when you left, um, I mean, you kind of stayed in, in YNR for two years and then moved over to Bangkok. Had you just been like, I need, these new experiences i need to try a whole lot of different stuff because i didn't before yeah i think in my 20s i've never actually the whole way been particularly career driven Mm. per se i think i worked it out bit by bit that actually adventure is probably the thing i love yeah um and in a funny way i guess so when you move and why you move i guess are you living for your cv or are you living for just what's working for you Mm. you know so for me loud was great i mean uh, they were very kind to pick me up when i was a writer who knew nothing about anything and teach me Mm. you know and then that i ended up being probably their main writer so you know your job moves within the job and then of course we started the digital piece so there's almost like three jobs within that eight years and i guess they were good enough to keep making it interesting for me and keep learning and I think at the same time I was having fun it was a bit of a family feel which I liked and so I guess I stuck with it um if I'm honest I was probably a little you know I don't know I didn't really know what to think of the rest of the industry and didn't have that much interaction with it so I was probably a little shy of it as well and I didn't go in there and learn as much maybe as I should have about it um, but having said that, once I did go travel overseas, I ended up working quite a lot of, quite a, enough different places to get those different experiences. So I guess from my point of view, it, it worked for me at the time. So I stuck with it. You know? Got it. And yeah. Bangkok. So Unilever uh, in Bangkok. Did you have to get around a language barrier? What, what was that <laughs> work it, like, kind of like? Because I, I get Ireland, like people speak English for sure. Um, it's, it's the main dialect. But in in Thailand, it's it's obviously a very different cultural shift. Yeah, don't underestimate how hard it is to understand the Irish in their own country. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of conversations at bars. Where I, I'm sorry, could you just give me that for the fourth time? I have no idea. I remember somebody turned to me, excuse me, could you get the York from the press? I'm like, sorry, the York from the press? And I'm like, the York, you know, the York. And someone who is not Irish says, that means thing. I'm like, great, the thing from the press. Oh, the press is the cupboard. And I'm like, all right, you want the thing from the cupboard, right? And there's little, there's quite a lot of bits getting your way. But um, Bangkok was wonderful. It's as a city, it looks terrible and smelly when you go through it, but it's a fantastic hotbed of interestingness. The Thais are really creative. I think Asia generally is quite creative, but um, Thailand, they just have it inbuilt. And it's not this kind of glam creativity. It's just a necessity level where people just do things in an interesting way. So you can just walk down the street and amaze at just the just an average day in Thailand. Um, plus then in the background, you've got, when you go down, if you turn left three times, you know, down multiple alleys, you'll find the most interesting little bars and in them they'll have a band, it'll have one Filipino, one Thai, one Farang white person, you know, one Vietnamese person, all pumping out some fusion <laughs> rock or something. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just like the way they do things is insane. So you just kind of get this world melting pot. Mm. Um, so I loved that about it. And then as a regional creative director, so I was working for Jay, 
AWT, but it was all um, Unilever products. I'd have to take a global strategy and then apply it in a way that you could run the same creative across five or six countries, all of whom speak different languages. So in a funny way, um, that made it easier because when you're in that situation, you just can't use language. So Mm -hmm. you have to start using visual ideas and simple key human truth thoughts that will yeah. work across any culture and, and you so you lose a lot of your tools like your ability to hit a hit a cultural piece or mm. a play on words all disappear but um it really makes you think in those big big terms so we did a lot of visual stuff obviously brilliant and what was what was living there like? It's what, fantastic. What was the house like that they put you up in? I guess. Is it? Is it? Are, are we talking like a dilapidated concrete building, and you're like like a kind of thing, or or were you living large? No, you time? live you live pretty large because you get paid Western salary in a place that's um, Thailand's got more expensive recently. But it's you 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 basically live in like a millionaire if you so choose. So I had a um an older but an awesome like 250 square meter apartment basically oh. which was only two bedrooms and most of it was one big room which we sort of hung all this art in the walls and had a foosball table in the middle Amazing. of it and um my brother-in-law actually um lived upstairs he was um a guy called julian horton who was one of australia's best known creatives he ended up going to kenya and then dying in a car crash after that which was oh. very sad about um 12 years ago but he um so he had the ping pong table and we had the foosball table and we kind of share have 20s. Yeah, we'd have 20s. That's exactly right. The problem is he was better at both of them. <laughs> Unless I fed him enough beer, then I could beat him at football. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, brilliant. And then what What brought you back? Because you came back after, right? Yeah, I came back after. So I didn't really want to come back, I'll be honest. It was um, my wife wanted to come back. She's a, a lawyer, but she's like a human rights lawyer. So she was working for the UN, but she was uh, finding that a bit... It sounds good, but in practice was a little bit of a grind, I think. And yeah. so she wanted to really come back. So I came back a bit kicking and screaming, I'll be honest with you. I was having fun in <laughs> Thailand. It's really good. Um, and then, um, actually, it's almost like this was this was the great turning point for me because, uh, you know, it's like life gives you what you need, you know. And I came back whingy, grumpy. This is shit. I don't want to be here. What's going on? And so within about a month of being home, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And it was literally like life had gone. You don't, you don't want to be here? All right, fine. <laughs> here you go. Yeah. Have this. Yeah. And so I then spent a year going through cancer treatment. And at that point, you go, no, no, it's okay, world. I really do want to be here. Sorry about being grumpy. You know, I do appreciate what I've got. You know, so it makes you kind of rethink your your attitude if you like and, and you wrote a book on on what you went yeah through so my left testicle that was a, a catharsis more than anything i'd written a whole bunch of emails going through the process and then um realized that if i packaged those emails maybe i could make a bit of a book out of it and they ended up being like five percent of the book so i literally just wrote the the story and i realized it was such an intense experience that i didn't think i can get a book I, it was like you know dumbledore in harry potter he pulls the thoughts out of his head and he puts in the pensive and so he stores his old thoughts on a, a bookshelf and then he can revisit them at any time. And it was like that for me. It was like, wow, this is a world-changing, life-changing life, <laughs> life experience. I shouldn't forget this, this intensity. So I wanted to write it down. And then I thought, well, I've written it down now. I might as well try and get it published. And it got published. So, um, so yeah, lessons from my left testicle. <laughs> and and was, it, was it that moment that, that pushed you towards doing work around sustainability and around the environment and for... more noble causes uh was that sort of the turning point yeah totally was it was not the turning point of oh my god everything i've been doing is terrible i got to do this it was like i'd already had the idea and i'd always wanted to do it yeah um and funny enough julian my brother-in-law and i decided we'd do it and and we decided i'd go home to australia for a year he'd go to africa to work for a year and then we'd do it after that and then of course i say he was killed in a car crash in africa but um so the idea was there what it did was bring it forward it, it's it just having cancer just gave me that realization that all those things you can do later well they may not be later so it was just like all right i've said i'm going to do this i want to do this let's just do this for better or worse i was freelancing at that point because i didn't be back in australia for a month or so so in one way that meant i could just focus on getting through the cancer on the other hand it means you got no income for a year so it was a little bit yeah double sword so no i chose just to um do it it's yeah. like face it do it live it 
and get through it. You know, this whole idea that you fight cancer is just a complete lie. It has nothing to do with you. You sit in various chairs, waiting rooms and beds while someone else fights it for you, you know. But I think it's important also to be kind of present through these things, if you like, and especially the emotional bit of all. It's pretty full on and it's made a lot worse by the drugs they pump into you. They mess with your head as well. They don't just kind of kill the cancer they kill your brain in some degree so so I, I was lucky I guess that I, I didn't have kids at the time I, I was able to rent the apartment out that we were going to move into that we bought from Bangkok and um, move into my in-laws house and just kind of do that um, so in that sense yeah I, I think I think people either shy away and deny or you embrace it and you know this is the journey I'm on and you do it and there's no right or wrong it's um but for me it's the latter you know and now it's time for a break are you a creative soul who feels crushed by the irrepressible reality of hilarious delusion you live in every day of your life perhaps you know more about xl formatting than your significant other's private parts resulting in a deep and throbbing pain emanating from your heart as you constantly ponder your sycophantic rise to the top of your organizational food chain you may have even found yourself tapping your foot non-stop in the doctor's office as the pulsating flow of blood from your head convinces you that the work-related stress disease you read about in national geographic one time is about to make your eyes pop from your skull atop a geyser of hot steam Well, have I got a deal for you. Miami Ad School are offering a strategic planning boot camp that is almost sure to guarantee you a life filled with ever-changing, mind-bending creative challenges that help you make an actual difference within the world. Not only does it put you in touch with some of the world's best strategic minds, like the ones on this podcast, but you'll be investing in a chance to start your life anew. And the best thing? Given you're a loyal listener to the Son of a Pitch podcast, we'll waive your application fee so there's absolutely no risk to you whatsoever. Just email us at podcastsoap at gmail.com if you're interested. That's podcastsoap, S-O-A-P, podcastsoap at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the good stuff. And what was the agency you went on to found before the, the Republic of Everyone? I went and worked with John Kane for a bit, who had set up a, well, he was Happy Soldiers, <laughs> which right. then I, I worked with him for a, a, a better part of a year, helping him, I guess, establish that as his yeah. writer. Yeah. And then he ended up turning that into a proper agency, which was Happy Soldiers, which became Agency of the Year oh, wow. one year. And then I think went out of business the, the next year, sadly. But <laughs> a lot of ups and downs. A lot of, yeah, very short history with a very big up and a very big down. But um, so... Uh, so that was always his and I guess when he got real about that went no it's going to be a real agency I went off and said alright um, that's enough freelancing I need to go do this thing that I said um, but it was it was good for me because it um, it gave me a bit of time from finishing cancer to get back into the game sure mm. and, and, and be back in it rocked my confidence horribly like I got a you know did a couple of gigs and I just didn't know if I'd be able to come up with anything it was like I'd gone from being a regional CD coming up with this stuff, but you just—it's like you've spent a well a year in this other world, and like, can I do this other this, back to this normal world again? So yeah. it was really good to do that, and then get back. You know, it's getting your fitness back, I guess. What What was that process like of getting your fitness back? What types of things would you do to get yourself <laughs> back into the zone? I guess uh, mentally, yeah, just sit there with a piece of paper just look, look <laughs> just at the white page <laughs> there's a bit of that i've always actually liked um whenever i need to come up with ideas i often go for a walk or a run yeah. just with a notepad and i find the serendipity of life is incredible the, the amount of times i'll just see something and go oh my god that's the idea huh. just happen to walk past it or just i think the quantity of ideas that goes through your head is much bigger just because your mind and your body are attached right and if your blood's pumping through your body it's pumping through your mind so so i do do a bit of sit with the white page but a lot of it's walk with a white page you know yeah uh, and then after so i guess after happy soldiers it looks like you pumped out a bunch of work that was kind of like advisory work so you went it, it, i'm seeing here like the mark gasnier foundation and and a bunch of other stuff director of the blue mountains world heritage uh institute Wow, you've been right on my LinkedIn, haven't you? Yeah, we have. <laughs> Look, the LinkedIn this is, hard. It's the number one place to go <laughs> if you want to learn about someone's career, for sure. Like, uh, I've got to lock this down. That's a plug for LinkedIn, by the way. We've got to hit them up for a couple of ad dollars, I think, for that one. Um, but yeah, so it, it looks like you kind of shifted 
shifted away from advertising a little bit and started started putting yourself into a couple of different causes um, and spreading they've yourself. They've more come since, I'll be honest. They're, they're more like... Um, as we've beca- so 12 years republic of everyone's 12 years now and i think like at the time i was just have a crack and give this idea ago but in in the fullness of 12 years i guess we've been recognized to some degree as kind of pioneering in this space you know there's there's others that would be unreasonable to those who pioneered it before we pioneered it <laughs> you know what i mean but um but um in that sense a lot of those are then people start being interested in your advice and of course that means they put you on boards to get your advice <laughs> yeah, sort of yeah, thing yeah. so so um they're all various i mean gaznia foundation was a moment in time that was mark gaznia wanting to get a cancer um, a, a ct um scanner into st george hospital and so just helping him figure out mm. how he'd just a lot of it just basicifying the message so that, that sort of thing and helping that he managed to do that so that was a moment in time which he honestly he did all the work i just had a bit of input um and then others it's often just helping good organizations understand how to present themselves a lot of it's quite simple but high value to them you know mm. so if this stuff came from republic of everyone can you tell us a bit about the the genesis or at least the birth of republic of anyone what what's the story behind the agency and and when did you i know you were saying that um before you kind of had the idea and you just needed to do it mm. um but it took you a little while to get there so when did when did you have kind of the the model ready and and everything and have thought that you'd figured out some way to do it um i'll tell you when i figure that out (laughs) (laughs) model ready um no it was um i don't don't know the you know not knowing what you don't know can be a very good thing (laughs) because you just go in and have a go you know um so Basically, I, I, I'd done, I did a couple of little bits of work to build up a bit of folio in the space, but it wasn't mm. much. It was tiny little things, you know, and then just whacked up a website and went, well, you can kind of be a creative agency at that point, really, <laughs> yeah. can't you? Um, <laughs> One website, that's all it takes, boys. Yeah, Come on. It's <laughs> kind of true. I mean, you then got to get someone to pay you. That's a harder bit. The website's kind of the easy bit. And then... Um, I guess like almost everyone who hears of us, I, I started out the same way and went, oh, you're the agency for charities then, you know, you're the do-good agency. Mm. And I went and pitched it to charities and they were pretty good. They, they, they saw the value in somebody who wanted to specialize in the space and picked up some work off Cancer Council, which was nice, you know, and um, bid out of Greenpeace and people like that. Um, but then the, I guess the realization came that really you, you want companies to be leading change as well. Mm. Um, so we started approaching companies and showing them all our great work. Um, and the, the problem is they just didn't have anything good to talk about. Mm. You know, so that's when we actually laddered back to going, well, why don't we help you get something good to talk about? Which actually comes down to what's now called a sustainability strategy, but that wasn't right. really called that in those yeah. days, or a corporate responsibility strategy. So what we ended up doing is starting to almost, it's almost corporate consulting, management consulting at that point, when you're going, well, what are the big issues that you're com- in your industry? Mm. Which are the ones your companies will place to champion? And therefore, how are you going to do it? And then what we realized is that we had that bit we kind of learnt. We, we blagged it to a fair degree. I'll be mm. honest with you. What I did is I had a mate who was a, a fairly senior in one of those roles in a big company, and he um, he just taught me the process. I, I right. bought him lunch. And he said, "Here's the process," <laughs> and I went great and tried it on another company. And then since then we've been doing it, and that was 11 years ago. So now we're really quite good at it, you know. Yeah. But what we've realised that we've got is the ability to go. And now how are you going to make it interesting and how you actually execute that? You know, how do you make it cool and add all the advertising bit where you go, all right, it's fine, you want to fight for climate change. Now how are you going to make me, like an 18-year-old who's really not thinking about climate change, engage in this and do something? And that's where the creativity and the twist comes in. So in that sense, I think in some ways we're more strategically um, housed than a lot of agencies are because we go right back to the core issues as opposed to the comm strategy and then we go all the way to the creativity and that's um, it's still only part of what we do we still do some NGO work and things like that but that's become the most interesting piece yeah. I guess in what we do uh, Can you give us an example of, of sort of a project that you've started up for a company and then gone on, on the way to uh, communicate? Yeah, yeah. Um, my favourite that we've just done lately is for Ben and Jerry's. To be fair, they brought us. The, so they brought us as a great guy there called Bert, who is their um, country 
um, head have, head of Ben and Jerry's for Australia or whatever, sure. and he um, he said, look, I've I've got to do. Um, it's part of what we do. It's in the DNA of Ben and Jerry's. You have to fight for causes, you know, social environmental causes, and the global mandate is climate. Is there? their big one and he said look I'm, I'm not quite sure how we do this and I don't have a great deal of resources how could you give me a proposal on how to do it and I said I can't give you a proposal and he goes why not because I, I have no idea how, how you're going to do that <laughs> climate is like you want to pick a big problem I think you've <laughs> found number one right um, so what I said is look I'll go and, and try and figure out how you could do that and then I'll give you a proposal you know and he said okay whatever you want so uh, the, the beauty of um, having started with NGOs and charities as your, as your bread and butter customers is they trust us because we do still do work for them and they mm. know we're more from their world than the ad world I, I almost consider us to be the communicators of the do good world not the do good comms agency mm. do you know what I mean it's just yeah, a question yeah, yeah. Yeah. Know, which industry are you in you know um and and um so i got i went to spoke to seven different ngos who all work on climate you get to speak to their you know head of campaigning because i know half of them and and the other ones will talk to you and and they gave me 17 different little levers of change if you like in climate and the and probably the most interesting one came out of australian youth climate coalition who said you know what um generally about 96% of any age group if not more is enrolled to vote with young people it's more like 82% oh. and um, but they're over, they're the ones that will vote climate and they said if you want a, a fight within a fight there it is and I went gee that's interesting I actually went back to the other people I spoke to said what do you think of that and they went that's great you should go with them <laughs> <laughs> so um, I basically went back to Ben and Jerry's and said look look at this that's 400,000 voters who are potential voters who are not voting and um, the most marginal electorate in Australia was won at the last election by 37 votes. Wow. You know, if you just motivate a percentage of these in certain electorates to, to, to vote, if they just vote on the lines that young people normally vote, they don't all have to vote climate, you will actually potentially change an election here around climate. And um, they said, that's great. So then we went and made some, then it gets creative, you know, and you come up with every ice cream pun under the sun for Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> yes. And then you, we went and got um, little um, rideable solar powered electric bikes with ice cream on the front and literally rolled up at O-Weeks and um, said and partnered with Youth Climate Coalition and said mm. if you check just pull out your phone check you're enrolled to vote show us great you are click click get a stamp you're not enroll now it takes three minutes click click get a stamp take it over there you get your free ice cream and um, and literally we had hundreds of people lined up and in six days we checked about 6,000 enrollments and did a thousand new signups or so and you go that's epic yeah and you kind of and the beauty of this for me and this is this is kind of the, the key is you know there's strategy in that there's ex exploration there's strategy and there's some fun creative because hey it's Ben Jerry's you've got to make it fun mm. so they're getting a really nice brand piece and, and you know Bert said to me this is great normally when we were taught climate it's a bunch of 50 year olds you actually got me talking to uni students mm. which is our real demographic so you've done something really good for their brand there which is essentially trial product trial just yeah. completely differently done um, but at the same time you've created a real impact and, and you know and that's to me become that's kind of my guiding light is can I get your brand something really cool that makes everyone love you and can I create a positive impact on the world at the same time and, yeah. you, and, and, and now that's that's what you want to do for everyone you know? yeah it's not too lofty a goal you actually broke it down into a super manageable task it and is it, manageable yeah. it's just I mean there's not really that much difference to that process than a standard comms process it's mm. just making sure your guiding light is I actually want to create some impact here. yeah do you think you could do that for any brand under the sun or are there brands that you just simply won't touch? <laughs> so there's the first question, can you do that? Some are easier than others and some fall out easier than others. Some are much harder to find something to stand for. Um, in terms of more the ideological question of would I do that for any brand, um, stums start to live a bit on the edge for you. You know, your casinos are probably getting close to a bridge too far but uh, but I I it's funny the ones that you don't think you'd work with don't actually approach you <laughs> it's yeah. a bit like that yeah. uh, and also I just try to keep my mind open because I think the danger in this space is you just say no I'm sorry not prepared to help you and then you go well uh, you know if you're not if you're not prepared to let everyone live in the tent at some point of making the world better then you've left someone out and they've become your enemy you know to some degree so Everybody, you know, the company is not a person. It's a bunch of people and there's a bunch of people relying on that salary and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it's like the arguments around coal mining is should coal just be banned? Yeah, probably if you're just looking for the impact, but should like 
10,000 whatever people lose their job overnight because of that, you're probably not as well. So how do you figure out how to work with everybody to create this change and then, mm. and then create a little more appetite for it and a little more appetite? So in that sense, my, my bar is pretty low as long as I can figure out a way to um, drag someone along a journey and give them more and more appetite to doing more good with their organization, if you like. I feel like the appetite for this type of work probably wouldn't extend throughout the entire company in itself. Do you often find yourself running into roadblocks with people within organizations that kind of have different, I don't know, ideological views or, or maybe a different view to the company and, and will just be a bit bit of friction? Yeah, of course you do. I mean, that would be the case with any project, obviously. Mm. Ideology, funny enough, doesn't often play. It's not like you end up with this left versus right wing argument that's not really there. It's more, um, hang on, I've got my day job, I just got to make sales, you're talking that side stuff. Yeah. So inevitably, look, I do a lot of new business for our company too. And inevitably, the truth is you can't sell somebody something. You can't sell anyone anything, I don't believe, in this world. What you can do is find somebody who's already interested in something is looking for how to do it. Yeah. You know, so, um, so the people who come to us are already trying to create that change in their org. So it's, I'm never trying to talk someone into it. Yeah. My client is always interested and they want to know how. The problem is they often have to bring others along on the journey. So you can show people all the stats in the world. I mean, every brand research piece, every employee engagement piece coming out says this stuff is just going through the roof. It has no impact. I can put that in front of people and they could not care less. Um, what you've got to do is show them. Because they'll always discount it. Oh, yeah, but it doesn't work for my brand. Oh, that's fine, but I tried green and it didn't work. Because you, you did it really badly, right? Mm. But anyway, they don't listen to that. What you got to do is find a little slice of cash within their marketing budget and go, why don't you just give me that little bit and I'll have a go and I'll prove to you that I can do something cool with that. And as soon as – and it's funny, like all um, – cynics become it's almost like a cynic is a dis disappointed optimist you know and it's almost like the more they pushed you against you at the start if you can give them something good the more they become your super supporter at the end yeah that's uh, brilliant i guess that that segues quite nicely into um selling green stuff to consumers and the green gap which you wrote about uh mm. so 80 percent of consumers are willing to buy green but only 50 percent do leaving a 30 percent gap what's what's the reason for that well, that's a good question. It's, uh, there's many stats around that. The one, the one we use is um, five percent of products are actually green products. Sure, if you like, but you, you still roughly adds up to about the same. Um, I think there's a lot of things. You know, I think there's a bit of um, who I want to be versus who I am. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think yeah, there's yeah, a truth yeah. in that. I, I think convenience is massive we often say that sustainability um convenience is the enemy of sustainability you know i want to be good and then i go to a picnic and i've got to get some plates and i need them now and there's some plastic ones at the supermarket and i buy them right it's like and that's the point you've just made literally you just you're going to use that plate for three minutes and it's going to live in nature for approximately a million years you know that's these are the decisions we make for convenience so uh, of course we do so there's a bit of that um, and then I think, honestly, probably it, it's harder to change those things. And then, then I think, honestly, that the products need to take a bit of a um, look at themselves sometimes and go, I think there's a lot of products that try to be good, but they're just not very good at being products. <laughs> you know what I mean? Name and shame many. Uh, that was a, my favorite one is a bit older now, but Cascade Green was the ultimate kind of mistake as the carbon neutral beer. And I went... The, I, I know, uh, probably the last thing on my mind when I go looking for my beer moment is carbon, carbon, carbon neutrality. neutrality you know? <laughs> and you can just see there's just a total lack of creativity in how those two things are attached. Yeah. You know, and you start to go, well, why is it carbon neutral? Does it plant forests? Does it do this? What What is it doing for me? How is that creating how is that laddering into my beer experience and making my beer experience better? And, mm. and look, that's the simple thing of all is you go, why did somebody buy the product? What's their core need? And then um, how does sustainability supercharge that core need? I, I think chocolate and um, coffee have done quite well because it's easy for, you know, coffee and chocolate are pleasure moments in my day. Sure. And it's easy for me to believe that if a farmer was paid better for their produce and that's better produce therefore i'm getting a better pleasure moment you know i, I can see it whether it's true or not mm. it, there's a logic to it for me so i think that ladders well yes. so some products ladder well and some don't and other ones that ladder well are um your commodities ladder really well which is why you try walk into a restaurant now with it out thank you being the choice of you know um soap, soap or whatever yeah. or, right. or or an airbnb without um you know the 
charity toilet paper. Mm. It, it's because um, things like that do well because I go, well, one toilet paper is as good as the next as long as it's not one ply, you know. <laughs> and then, so I might as well do good in my purchase. So there was another, there's a nice little insight there that in products I just had to buy anyway, I might as well buy the good one. So there's, so I think in those two styles of sector where it adds to my, adds to the reason I bought it or, or I'm, I might as well do good on the side, it works well. And I think a lot of other products simply fail to create one of those little adders in my mind, if you like. Mm-hmm. Mm. If you're a creative, are you just, I, I mean, in, in a traditional shop and you're looking to do something green, are you just uh, kind of saying, how could I throw a green lens over the top of this? I mean, it seemed like what you were just saying, what you were saying just then is that there's a lot of nuance between kind of brand fit, company fit and green uh, kind of projects. So how do you get them more on the table, I think is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, how do you, that is a beautiful way of putting it. Um, I, we call it the law of more, which is, I never want less in my life, you know? Uh, you go, and that sustainability is so much about less. Have a shorter shower. Why don't you fly less? Why don't you stop mm-hmm. using your car? It just gives me less. I don't want less. I want more, right? So I, I think that's a really nice starting point is to go, okay, what is the, as I say, what is the core need of the consumer in purchasing this thing or doing this thing or whatever it is? It's normally a purchase. Um, what would differentiate this product if I did some good somewhere that would either attach it to me ideologically like absolute vodka standing for um, you know gay marriage or marriage equality or Qantas you know that was Qantas and marriage equality is a great one you know Mm. it it, kind of makes sense you know everyone should be able to fly everyone does things the Mardi Gras is a uh, a, a great, you know, uh, tourism moment. Obviously, a lot of um, flight attendants are gay. You kind of go, I can see. So that doesn't doesn't quite fit my rule of it increases the reason I bought that. But there's a brand natural fit there. Mm. So you can look for those, which is more like um, how does the ideology of this brand fit with a social cause? Or you look for, as I say, that um, how, how does this good thing make it a product that it does the job better than the other product? Yep. You know, and and some of these things get a bit ethereal because you start to go like um, shoes. You know, everyone's wearing the shoes with the V on the side at the moment, which are sustainable product. Have a look around yeah, the yeah, cool Vega. kids' feet. Yeah. Vega, that's right. Yeah. Um, and you go, so there, like, why do I buy a pair of shoes? And you can be mistaken to thinking I want them comfy and that. But the truth is, I want to look cool, right? I want people to yeah. think I'm cool because I wear the cool brands. And Patagonia is another one on that space, you know. So, so in that sense, you go, a lot of people want to associate with the ideology of doing good. Therefore, the truth of most clothing is I want to be cool. Mm. That's a cool ideology now. It kind of matches. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So what do you think of, uh, is it Adidas with a new forever shoe that you can recycle it's great yeah you good on them can they own that i uh, hope not because the whole world needs to kind of yeah, go that way <laughs> you need to spread it don't you so that's the that's other right. thing is is kind of i like it seems like the ad industry are bashing a lot of brands for purpose at the moment and mm. there's this word of purpose and i know it's it's probably poorly articulated version of what we were talking about just there with brand fit. And uh, do you do you feel like that industry should chill out a little bit and and let brands do kind of good for once, or uh, like what's your feeling about this whole purpose argument? Yeah, I think I think it's purpose is a bit of a pity in a way because it was now it's like the it's like yesterday's fashion. It was so cool two years ago or even a year ago, and now yeah. it's like oh, purpose is bullshit. But I honestly, just think it was executed badly. What it seemed to me is people just got the differentiator line or whatever it is in the brand key or choose your brand <laughs> shape, yeah. brand iceberg, yeah, yeah. that's right, yeah. brand wave, yeah. <laughs> whatever you want to know. Um, and they just replaced the word purpose, and and it misses the the key piece, which is. Um, for us, purpose needs to have an impact at the end of it, mm. which is as an organization, whether it's a, you know, whatever level brand it is, a company level or a product level brand, it's what's the thing this product is going to change in the world or this company is going to change in the world? What's our reason for getting up in the morning, you know? And that has to be real. It, it has to be a real problem that you solve and you have to really solve it. And the, my problem is most purposes, they were just kind of written as slightly vacuous statements that nobody ever really intended to deliver on. Mm. And therefore, they're not actually purpose at all. Now, I, th- I feel like this would be a good question to kind of pivot into our next little segment with. But the other stat is that a lot of young people 
apparently, if you if you look at Deloitte and you look at all of the different management consultancy white papers that come out, want to work for a company that has a guiding purpose mm. and has kind of has has a reason for being at, at the beginning of it. I want to know if you've seen an influx of talent reaching out to you because they see that you guys are working um, on brands in in that kind of way or has that kind of uh, made brands come to you looking to kind of find where they're at and do all of those sorts of things to attract new talent? Yeah, great question. You know, the, the best thing I ever heard anyone say in this space is it was um, a panel in Melbourne and this, this lady was... 26 or something and she'd done a charity of her own or whatever she'd done something cool and someone said why do you do it and she got up and she said well I'm never going to be able to afford a house I might as well do something I believe in and I went oh my goodness you've just nailed it which is that every other generation was taught if you tow the line there'll be rewards for you so Mm. you why don't you just leave what you really believe at the door and take on what we believe is a company and will essentially buy those beliefs off you and one day you can go back to them if you want or do them on the weekend you know and then i think that that equation just got broken by literally by house prices where you go well yeah well it's 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 like well that's the dream right and that's the ultimate purchase at the top of the whole thing is i have yeah. my home and you go, well that's not there well why am i leaving my values at the door you know so um so Yes, I've most certainly seen a lot more of that in people. Having said that, there was always a segment of humans who always felt this way. So we've always had a fair few people walk, trying to walk in our door. Um, I'd just love to be able to take on more of them. What I've definitely seen lately is it's our client base has moved from companies who are essentially inherently selling a good thing, mm-hmm. um, who we've always targeted, NGOs and more that corporate piece, to brands walking in going, I need a, I need a social impact story. Basically, mm. I need a, a real purpose story. I, I like to call them social impact. I'm kind of thinking we should go out and say, who's your social impact agency? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you haven't got one? Well. <laughs> but, um, but yes, yeah, so most... It, now, it's not like the wave that you see in media, media versus the wave you see in terms of execution is... Uh, it's a lot smaller. So it's not like suddenly everybody's doing it, but certainly the pickup has been a lot bigger. And what I find interesting is... um. You go and talk to brand people about this and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't work. And you go, oh, yeah, ever heard of the body shop? You know, it's just a fad. It's like they build a global empire on no animal testing. You ever looked at Nike? What are they all about? You know, empowering um, black communities in basketball, empowering women to feel like they can be fit like men. They've built their whole business actually on empowerment, mm. you know, and you, you think this is new, you know. So actually what you're seeing is the smarter companies, the Coca-Colas, the Unilevers who have some pretty cool brands, are starting to start you know, trying to embed it across their brands and all the kind of other ones are not quite there yet. <laughs> sure, but can you jump on to a purpose so late in the game? What are, what are Coca-Cola repositioning their value to be? Um, they've just come out with a few things actually, less about purpose. They've got this whole thing called World Without Waste and they're actually um, they're going through their bottles and making them out 100% recycled. PET, which is, which is great. You know, that's what they. That's probably their biggest negative impact yeah. across all their brands because mm. they do Matt Franklin, of course, is their biggest brand. So they've looked at that and go, all right. Well, if our biggest negative impact on the world is plastic waste, we should sort this out. And when you add that to Australia having a problem with curbside recycling, now it's mm. it's a pretty good thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Cool. Okay. Now I think I think the kind of segue here is that you know young people looking to follow their purpose and their their kind of career. I I don't want to keep using the word purpose. Let's say young people are looking to make a social impact and maybe they're doing it in different ways that the government doesn't always like, which is why we're going to get into our next subject, uh, which is the pitch. So we'll take a break for a sec and then we'll come back to it. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what will be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Woo! I really don't even remember how the Sully Drawings first started. I mean, I remember when I started, but I don't really remember why, except that I had noticed one of the empty black panels and it just seemed to be the perfect place to have a drawing. So I went above ground, bought a piece of chalk and went back down and did it. Give me a break. 
drawing with Subway always had a kind of element of um, kind of fear of the unknown because you, you always had to be prepared um, to get arrested, to get caught, and getting locked up for a few hours. Hold on, I'm arrest for graffiti in the subway. It didn't happen that often. Most times, cops would just give you a ticket and let you go. Um, but there was always sort of that edge to it because you never know. You never know which kind of cop is going to catch you. You were immediately seeing the effect of what you were doing, and you were immediately sort of seeing the, you know, the power of this of this thing to communicate and to actually touch people and stop them in their tracks. Specific times when they came upon the drawing and it filled this gap that was waiting to be filled. It made something uh, make sense, you know, and it made it a moment for them which will stay in their memory forever. That's what all we're rolling. Okay. All right, we're back. So. The pitch, for, uh, the pitch for Ben is, from vandals to valuables. Australia is a hotbed for some of the world's greatest artistic talent. From Reg Mombasa. Reg. Reg. <laughs> wow. I've, I've read this brief before. To Jason Pollock, Ken Doan, Jackson to Brett. Pollock. What did I say? Jason. Jackson Pollock. We're off to a great start. To Brett Whiteley. Patricia, oh my God, I'm not, I don't even know how to, <laughs> Let me get you a lot of good this. artists in Australia. All right, Australia. so we got Jackson Pollock, <laughs> Ken Doan, Brett Whiteley, Patricia Piccanini, and the list goes on. Okay, thank you, Vince. These artists are both revered and immortalized by a government who seems to understand the merit of their work. However, the way in which the Australian government treats its lesser known street artists is at its best inconsistent and at its worst egregiously vindictive and corrupt. <laughs> Some big words Hot language. Mm. Vince writing it into the brief. <laughs> there seems to have developed a muddied dichotomy in which artists without international fame or whose work isn't sold for incredible amounts of money are convicted and charged for the same crimes of willful damage that their internationally acclaimed counterparts are celebrated for. The Son of a Pitch podcast are fans of an incredibly disparate <laughs> array of street art artists, both international and local. Most of these artists, however, have not notoriety of a Banksy and or the financial ability to, to acquire the legal representation needed to defend themselves in a court of law. Criminal charges can not only prevent a young artist from travelling overseas, but kill their opportunity to find work and might possibly prematurely stunt or diffuse completely the artistic growth of some who might otherwise find international acclaim in their own right. Vince, this brief is a bit of a mouthful. Your task, <laughs> conceive of a campaign to get the public on board with an amnesty for Australian street artists. And as always, we've asked the guest to respond in the patented son of a pitch, taking the piss format as problem, <laughs> insight, strategy, and solution. Ben, how'd you go? Well, thanks. Uh, can I just read that as well? Oh, yeah, <laughs> go for it. Take all the time you need. This is, this is the new test to see if you can be like a news reporter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're almost there. Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, good question. Hey, I mean, I had a, I had a, as as you know, I had a bit of time to think about this one on the weekend while, <laughs> while on the piss. Um, the um, the problem really, I, I wondered whether actually getting the public on board is the place to start with this one, because I sort of looked at it and went, well, who's busting these people? Yeah, and you go, well, obviously it's the cops, but they're not going to change. It's it's the and at the end of the day, you start to go, well, it's whoever sets up saying, you know, if you, if you put your street art here, you're going to become a vandal, yeah. which is kind of councils normally. It's not always, but it, it sort of is. And you start to go, now I start to see the problem, you know, look at most councils and it's fully, you know, your oldiest, moldiest kind of people. And, and, and I guess the first place I'd start is just by looking at them and go, do you realize that what you're calling crime is actually one of your greatest assets that you're missing out on in your suburb? Because um, City of Melbourne's obviously worked it out. They've got their laneways and they've got their Banksy somewhere. I think mm. they painted over it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Twits. Um, <laughs> and then I started to go, you know, what makes street art beautiful is that it's, it's different in different places for different people. And then you start to look to Sydney and you go, there's all these suburbs that no one would ever go to on the weekend, you know, like. I won't name any because I'll offend someone from somewhere. <laughs> but, and they probably have some of the most interesting stuff because yeah. they art is most intense where people are kind of worse off or they've got something to fight against. And, and you start to go, wow, imagine the flavor of street art in a, 
Canterbury Bankstown would be totally different to somewhere like a Currajong or or a Bondi Beach or wherever it is. And and the idea that your council could almost differentiate itself and make it an art tour destination seemed like an interesting conversation into a council. You know, especially when you you talk to councils and and you start to figure out what are their problems and well they need money. They want people to come to their area and they also want um, community cohesion. They want to feel like people have a sense of their place so so I thought that's probably where I'd start is, is is maybe work with a council to get them to decriminalize it or stop busting people in their area and actually turn it into a walking gallery and huh. and see how that goes and then go look this is what we did in this council why doesn't every other council do it you know and then I thought you could probably bust that open beyond councils into individuals because you've got heaps of people have a side of a house or a front wall and who said who, you know art, art friendly space come do my space you know and, and suddenly, if you're one of the people who wants to have a go, you get to, you've got designated spaces you can do it. And the whole thing kind of changes and you, you turn criminals into somebody who's actually helping create culture in an area. So I thought that was maybe an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Then I thought, no, nah, there's something missing here. And that's the fact that by definition, um, by definition, street art is revolution, you know. And as soon as you make it legal... It's kind of lost a little bit of itself. Yeah. You know, it's it's almost like Banksy is, of course, you know, one of the world's most famous artists now. But I bet you 10 years ago, if they'd have caught him, they'd have busted him. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. and it's that little bit of um, fighting against the power, fighting the system, that's that's what its roots are. So as soon as you make it legal, it sort of loses its roots a bit. So yeah. I think that would probably still work, but I think then you need to go, all right, hang on. But you've still got to have something for the for people who are essentially pioneering. Remember, yesterday's criminals in so many spaces are today's legends, heroes, you know, whether it's your Martin Luther Kings or your, um, the people who fought for women to have a vote. The gay Mardi Gras, the first one they were beating the crap out of and stuck in jail. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so you have to allow for that illegal bit yeah. you know because it's where the creativity comes from so then I thought maybe it'd be interesting to set up almost a um a street artist fund where you know people who appreciate it artists po um, put up their stuff and maybe put a thing saying if you like it help me pay the criminal charges <laughs> you know what I mean so it's almost like Perfect. you know people who believe in fighting the power and in this uh, like underground insurgency yeah. create the fund it's my bitcoin address you know? yeah yeah support the gorillas kind of thing almost and I thought maybe that would be interesting and then I thought probably the third wheel that you need to think about is actually speak to the people themselves because of course street art is one of those variable terms you know, one person's street arts, another one's graffiti, and and where you sit in there is is entirely personal. I mean, everyone will look at a beautiful mural and say that's fantastic. That's clearly street art. But then, and then most people look at a tag on a public transport seat and go, that's vandalism. But then you get you know all the variations in between. So you probably have to 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 kind of start speaking to people and going, look, if you lifted the game of what you put on things it would probably change this a little bit as well. Like, mm -hmm. stop just tagging things and, you know, scraping your name into the window of a bus. I don't think anyone likes that. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just self-serving crap. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just me going, look at me, I was here. Why don't it? And, and therefore, I reckon there's always also got to be a piece where you go, find your better street artists and get them to mentor through those mm. people and go, look, if you want to leave your mark, leave a mark that's worth leaving. And let's bring you on board, and 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 that's where you sort of where we tend to come to with all these sort of big, interesting social issues. Is there's no one simple answer, and it's you can't make that can't lie an ad. You know, yeah. that's going to yeah. change it all. You've kind of look look at the whole system and go, what have I got for you? What have I got for you? What have I got to you? And when you bring it together, you do create change. You know? How would the Republic of Everyone go about kind of getting councils on board and infiltrating that system, and getting <laughs> a bit of change management happening, say, if you were to do it in real life? You find, yeah, we do a lot of work with councils, actually, because you'd imagine social impact mm. change space is often a government issue. Um, you find your smarter councils. You yeah. know, Jess Miller, who was the youngest ever um, City of Sydney Deputy Lord Mayor, does work with us. So, you know, you find your City of Sydney is obviously hyper-progressive, so is City of Melbourne. Mm. So then you go, all right, they're a bit obvious, so you try it with them, and everyone goes, yeah, that's fine, that's City of Sydney. So then what you often do is go the flip side, and you go, where's a council no one would expect to do this? Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you go and um, show them that case study, and we think you should do this. And then suddenly that's the one that makes everyone pay attention. The unexpected one, not yep. the city of Sydney. Yeah, I think that's actually happened with regard to this exact issue. So the Toowoomba Council.
council, I think, have legalised street art and they're using it as a bit of a USP as well off the back oh, of Melbourne's, Melbourne stuff. But yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for putting that together that's and epic. for taking the no time. Worries. Um, I'm I'm glad that you know we we got such a good story out of it. Yeah. I, I I think we might have to uh, put it into a deck and see if we can make something like that happen. A with, legal uh, fund. with your permission, of course. We'll <laughs> put it into all a yours, deck and release it with the pod. The Gorilla Legal Fund. I yeah. like it. Yeah, Set yeah, the yeah. ideas free. Yeah. I say. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Ben. We appreciate you taking the time and sharing your knowledge. And obviously, it's very important for us and other young people to be able to hear and learn from your experience. So, Is there anything you, you want to uh, plug no. for your 20 listeners? No, I'll plug you guys. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> on, yeah. no, getting off your bums and doing something that makes a difference for everyone's hard to do. takes up your spare time. So, Well, good on you. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> High praise. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Bye. You have been listening to a Son of a Pitch podcast. My name is Vince. And my name is Max. And we're both planners living in Sydney, Australia. A big thanks to Helga Diamond and Miami Ad School for supporting the show. And if you want to get that $100 fee waived for Miami Ad School, please drop us a line at podcastsoap at gmail.com. That's podcastsoap at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye.